previously on Two Star, Two Trek. It's beyond, you know, the the logistics of the operation or the logic of what needs to happen next, uh, which, you know, TNG, a lot of it is is feelings about dads and yeah, that, yes. that, you know, all of the family dynamics that go into that were were very interesting as like another layer on top of what's already going on, which is already a very dense episode. Greetings, friends and fellow Trekkies. Welcome to Two Star Two Trek. Tonight we are talking season three of Discovery. But uh oh, it's not a two-parter. It's it's a it's a secret three star three Trek, y'all. It's Unification Part Three. We're jumping back to back I to guess, the future. Yeah, back to the future is right. This is the third episode of a two-parter from TNG. It's very very weird. I'm right. sorry, I have cool. to interrupt both of you. <laughs> <laughs> that introduction is too ridiculous, and you just—that's okay. That's, the, we have. that's where we're at. That's the energy level. Let me go get some more gin and tin, tonic. I'll be right back. Fantastic. Well, we have two fantastic guests joining us this evening. We have Sarah back from our two-parter on Unification Part 1 and 2. Sarah, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well, and I'm so excited. Thank you for having me again. Oh, it is always an absolute pleasure to have you come and teach us how to be better Romulans and Vulcans and Kumbaya into the sunset together. (laughs) Pretty much. And we also have Michael joining us this evening. Michael, how's that drink tasting? Dude, this is one of the best gin and tonics I've ever made, which is to say that I've only made like five in my life, and so it has to be one of the best. Oh, sweet, sweet. So we're learning how to, to mix our drinks mix our cultures we are when, gonna jump right in yeah when you I'll drink see y'all at 10 forward <laughs> when you drink as little as right. me it's kind of, mixing drinks is kind of an overstatement i pour shit in the glass until it tastes good <laughs> <laughs> perfect so caitlin why don't you give us just a little quick recap on unification part one and two and you know if you guys want to throw in some color commentary by all means i'm, I'm the recap gal now that's what um, you're good at it. Apparently. Remember, recap. Uh, so, going all the way back to TNG, we do have the old version of our friend Sarek, who's, you know, it's getting a little weird over at Sarek's house, and he, he knows he's dying, but he's also just a little, little, little loose in the head. And Picard goes to visit him, and Amanda's like, or, I know, it's the wife after Amanda, right? I think it's one of his wives. Yes, I think it's the... Th- next wife yeah, yeah who, who's like uh sarah uh, it's a problem and also where's spock and uh picard's like oh yeah i actually came here to tell you guys that spock is definitely somewhere uh in romulan territory and it's kind of sketchy so bye they they go searching for spock which is you know a previous previous theme and in installment sounds like you make a good movie. star trek yes yes it happens <laughs> several times throughout star trek they somebody goes searching for spock pretty often where's spocko so, <laughs> yeah they um, <laughs> they you know kind of commandeer a klingon ship to get some cloaking and there's a really funny scene where data like crunches numbers over the cards sleeping prone body and it's it's not upsetting for anyone and they get there and are immediately made even though they are wearing 
the outfits with with the shoulder. They've got pads the outfits with the, the shoulder pads. Makeup. They've got some prosthetics, but yeah, not not good enough for the for the Talshiar or even the lower level of Romulan spies. I want to I want to <laughs> point out really quick how ridiculous it is that the Talshiar immediately are like, "Hey, that's Picard and Data, but Spock right. arriving on Romulus from the Federation big space. Deal. Yeah, no fight. Who cares? They can just they can tell that the ears are fake. It's <laughs> so it's that, just yeah, too much. They can see like the wonder glue underneath, and they just right. no, it's it's not working. A little for bit them. of a little bit of liquid latex. And, yes, and they just spray painted Data. So they yeah they immediately make them, and, and they're like, all right, we'll let you guys have your little meetings. That's fine. Well, they're big Patrick Stewart fans, right? They're like this guy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> then not Tasha Yar shows up, and she's like, Wahaha, evil plan. I'm gonna make a fake Spock and have him tell everyone that there's unification, but that I'm gonna throw some ships across the border and have them explode. <laughs> and then they hologram hide in the walls and uh, attack her, and then they get out and everything's fine, but then Spock stays on Romulus because he's like, I think I can do more good here, and it would be great if you guys went home. And before they end... Picard's like, oh yeah, by the way, your dad's dead. And he's like, oh, that's a bummer. Uh, we didn't get along. <laughs> and Picard's like, I know. Do you want to mind meld about it? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and then they share some feelings and roll credits. And roll credits. Beautiful. And then at some point, it, it should be noted, at some point, Spock does leave Romulus. And then Romulus is destroyed in the flashbacks in 09 Trek, which then makes Picard go on the journey he goes in in Picard season one. Mm-hmm. So, like, all of this is, like, weirdly interconnected. This is, like, yeah, for a show that has, has you know, Discovery has, has taken so much from the Enterprise-verse, because they are very close together in, in time, this is a lot about the TNG universe, and, yeah, like you said, not just TNG itself, but, like, the actual lore of like Picard moving forward, which is a lot of Romulan stuff, which makes sense. Yeah, which is really great. So that brings us to Unification Part 3. Still unifying, baby. Which is... Well, see, and uh, mm, this is where I have problems, because this is called Unification Part 3, but as we find out in like the first 15 minutes of the, sh- the episode, they've already unified, they changed the name of the planet. Like, okay, but like the planetary version of living in the full house house together. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Right? There's just, like, an <laughs> attic up top that, like... That's where Uncle Jesse lives. Uncle Jesse Romulan lives. <laughs> right. Like. And, like, they all have to get along for the sake of, like, Michelle Tanner, but, like, <laughs> they all have their own agendas, they all have their own stuff going on, and at the end of the day, when confronted with the information that, like, maybe Navarre, uh, Vulcan, if you're nasty was not responsible for the burn, they're like, everyone comes out with, like, their own motivations, like, immediately. So it really is tenuous at best, even after, you know, hundreds of years of working on their issues. The other big issue I have with this being a Unification 3 type episode is that one of the big questions for Unification 1 and 2 was like, okay, but if they did unify... What happens to the Romulan Star Empire? That's a big question. That's a lot of real estate to just write off. And then right. Unification 3? Right. Nothing. Zero. Zip. One of the most powerful empires in the galaxy. Hmm, who knows? They just had a merger right. in the end. Well, maybe they Everyone just... I mean, happy. presumably... <laughs> they just gave it up. You know, presumably post, like, the Picard era, the Romulans took some pretty serious hits in terms of 
resource and production chains and things like that. Well, they lost their home planet. They, I mean, they lost they the essentially, hub of basically like their deal. Right? Do they essentially become refugees at this point? I mean, the the ones from Romulus did, and then from the the planets within the Star Empire, I imagine just like yeah, again, like supply lines just like stopped for a while. Right? right? There's power vacuums and all sorts. Because like of even the things. Federation was saying like even just trying to like relocate one planet's worth of people because it was like you know the, the flagship planet or whatever like was just so much a drain on their resources. Like, I would imagine the Borderlands didn't get a ton of attention. I like, in theory, and at least on a surface level, that unification was a bit messy, and that it was not just, you know, they came together and everything was happily ever after the end. Like, they do indicate that there was some kind of a, you know, struggle of trying to get people to coexist, and there are political and cultural differences still, but... It is kind of a disservice that that's said, but it's not really shown. There's no really like yeah. examples of that other than like, oh, yeah, trust us. It's it's pretty spicy over there. But, <laughs> you know, they, we don't really have that kind of an insight as far as in the media itself. Literally like the, the president of the planet who right. her main contribution to unification is unifying their fashion sense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. Now newly refined vulcanized shoulder pads. Right. They're classy, they're clean, and they're not too big. And they only kind of look like your grandmother's couch. It's not like a full-on 80s couch anymore. Right. It's like a 90s couch or an early aughts couch. Yeah, it's like a West Elm couch. It's a nice <laughs> subtle tweed. For every thousand years in the Star Trek universe, Vulcan fashion progresses 10 Earth years. Is the <laughs> And the haircuts don't change at all. Slightly That's refined awesome. bowl cut. Very ever so slightly. Right. She's a petite yeah. woman. I think she wears it well. Yeah, I really liked how she portrayed her. She was, she very, was a great character, yeah. Very stern, but a little bit less rigid, I guess. Less of a stick up her Vulcan butt. The one thing I really enjoyed about this is the name change for Vulcan. Mm -hmm. I think that's like cool as shit. I think it was definitely a necessity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's just, it, it shows, you know, the evolution of, of time and culture and how things keep moving and nothing is static and set and set in place. It's, it's a really nice touch. Yeah, I kind of talk about this in the future. I think next week I talk about this. But the <laughs> idea that the Romulans would just be okay living on a planet called Vulcan is a little bit too much to swallow, so I think you have to change the name. Right. Yeah. It is really cool, though, to kind of imagine a future where everybody gets along, because that that's the future I would like to live in, you know? That, that sounds really great and really awesome. Yeah, but, but not this future you know, where everybody gets along. Well, and, and this future where everyone gets along is because, like, as as a planet, they believe themselves to be responsible for this thing that has damaged the universe. And so, like, they're all kind of in seclusion together and, like, living in, like, this deep, profound sadness together, which is, like, kind of the core of both of their cultures. But it's it's interesting that this is the... This is kind of like, you know, the, the, at least so far for Star Trek, kind of like the end game for them is to, like, find refuge with each other. Yeah. What do you guys think about the fact that Vulcan Navarre left Starfleet, Federation. left the United Federation of Planets? And, you know, at one point, you know, Saru's asking all of these questions about it. And 
it comes along that the Romulans were the ones that wanted to stay in the Federation and the Vulcans wanted out and like all of that stuff. I think that's really nice texture. What do you guys think? I liked that. There is definitely, I, I think we've seen examples of Vulcans having this really strong sense of personal responsibility. And it makes sense to me that, you know, something that dramatic and that drastic with such big implications, they would really take that upon themselves and say, oh, clearly that this is something that we contributed to. Therefore, you know, we're out, we're pulling out. But it was pretty like shocking to me as well, considering they are founding members of the Federation. <laughs> so it was like, oh, shoot. Okay, that's that's pretty dramatic. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a bit kind of maybe a little bit heavy handed done just for the, the sake of the narrative, just so that it is kind of this sort of divisive conflict that they have to overcome within the episode. But it does make sense. I think there is precedent for it. Yeah, there, there was a whole Brexit about it. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, and, and if you do the math, I mean, they've been in the Federation for over a thousand years. I right. Mean, it's really fairly recent that they've done this. And so, you know, I think there's like a couple hundred years of difference. It's not like an incredible amount. The fact that everybody was part of an organization like that for as long as they were is also mm-hmm. impressive. And like nothing, nothing systemic like that stays. And so it makes you wonder that even if like in the absence of something like the burn happening, maybe that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. Maybe like mm-hmm. the president kind of hints that there's other things and other directions that the Federation was going in leading to this dilithium crisis and essentially like some kind of potential climate change issue that like, you know, was really putting a lot of tensions between the founding worlds. Yeah. I kind of like that. The burn. Cause as of right now, Michael, you said this on our previous episode right now, we like the burn. The burn's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Very burn's great. It's, it gets really good and then it is not, but yeah, the burn, I kind of like that as kind of a direct, like it's an adjutant, of- but it's not like, yeah, it's not the thing that's like really led to this. Yeah, the other big part of this is that it kind of makes no sense to belong to, I mean, from a, from the logical Vulcan perspective, it doesn't really make sense to belong to an interstellar empire-ish thing when nobody can really travel, right? Like, right. like it's, it's hard to travel between the planets and stars, so it doesn't really make sense. But what I'll also say here is, since Vulcans live so long, a lot of the people in that room or the shuttle where they're having their meeting and all the Vulcans, they were alive when the burn happened, yeah. right? It's not some... Right, because right. of lifespan. Exactly, yeah. And I think it's really important to remember, a lot of them, this is a fresh wound. This is very yes. fresh in their mind. And their point, uh, as given by the Admiral dude, was it's not that they, they think, oh, we did this, that makes them leave the Federation. It's that... You made us do this. They they did their right. experiment under duress. They didn't want to. They thought it was too dangerous. And it's like you said, it's a lot of the same people. So like, it's kind of just bringing, like dragging all these people who went through this the first time back out and saying like, you know, our grandparents were the ones that argued with you and now we're going to argue with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, for the, for the Vulcans, it really probably does feel like, no, we've already had this conversation with your parents. We're not having it with you again. <laughs> we've already done all of this. That said, it is ridiculous when it comes out what happened with the burn that none of these Vulcans who are super smart and were alive the whole time ever thought to check their math. <laughs> right, because essentially Michael Burnham gets three points of data and thinks she's cracked it. And like, that doesn't fly in peer review, like at all. You need way more data for like, something. The only like that. explanation I can think for also like why 
Michael Burnham's like interpretation of of what is going on is taken with with any clot at all is that like you know prior to discovery showing up it's been a lot of very slow moving ships moving information slowly between points and like maybe the information isn't that hard to put all together and draw a conclusion but like you still get that like telephone effect yeah there's i i i i want to give like the shred of the benefit of the doubt to this scenario because otherwise like michael burnham is just like op as a character Uh, And I I rarely say that, but um, I think, you know, because, again, even though Discovery shows up and Discovery is essentially like a pirate ship compared to what is out there, they're a pirate ship with a spore drive. And like, so they're able to do that final jump that um, the other, you know, parties in this situation are now like, like completely ensnared by. Right to just like put it together. I'm sorry, you said final jump. And I laughed. I, 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 <laughs> my heart. I don't know if I want to like carbon date this episode exactly, but did you see that there is a rumor that Scott Bakula has started that they're going to bring back Quantum Leap and he's going to finally, finally jump? Oh my god! Ah! I'm so excited. Sorry. Oh also, my god! I wanted. To, that's it's incredible. I also wanted to get out there that you know. The Vulcans predicated their idea of who was a worthy culture to interact with on a science level by, like, who had warp drive. Mm. Right. And, and now nobody now has Now no it. one has warp drive. And so it, I wonder if there's, like, a part of it, not even just from, like, an ego level, but from, like, literally the essence of, like, what they consider worthy people and, and themselves among the, the unworthy to, to advance. Right? Does the, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like, does the, the primate directive even exist? Like, we yeah, can't expose ourselves. Been like, stripped back, you know, to like their their previous form, so to speak. Like, you know, where do you try again? Is it some like you know? You know what it is. I know what it is. Damning it's, of their hubris. It's it's the Mega Man blasters. If you have the Mega Man <sighs> blasters, you're good. Because, like, everybody in Discovery uses these, like, little handheld, like, their, their hands turn Mega into Mega Man, Man blasters. <laughs> like, they kind of do. It's goofy. <laughs> to not have that, like, technological benchmark. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at, is that, again, it, like, rolled everyone back to this, like, earlier version, and, like, the Vulcans, I can very easily see, especially the Vulcans we knew back in the Enterprise era, not being able to deal with that really well. <laughs> <laughs> well, and especially to the point that Michael was making about these Vulcans experienced it. They were there. They did the thing, you know? Right. That's also a point to discuss as well. Uh, Michael, I had a question for you specifically, because I know you are a very studious man. Well, I try. You like research and you like things like that. How does the whole Michael Burnham solves the burn thing sit with you? <laughs> So it's only stupid because the Vulcans never did it. That said, her showing up. So something somebody said earlier was that like, oh, well, you need more data than just these three data points. That would never fly. It depends on the data. This data is pretty fucking ironclad. There's no way to fake it. It it points to something very distinct. All you need to triangulate a point in space is three points. That's it. You right. could probably show what Michael Burnham was trying to show with just two points. That's probably all you would mm-hmm. need because we already have the third point, which is where the Vulcans think the origin was. 
So actually, yeah. we're totally fine in terms of the evidence. The fact that the Vulcans reject this is just sloppy writing. Well, you have to have some sort of conflict, right? Yeah, which is why this entire storyline is fucking ass, Ryan. It's so bad. <laughs> like, I don't think it's bad. I think my biggest disappointment with this is, like, you're looking at the episode list. You see Unification 3. You're like, oh, shit. Like, it's about to go down. And then they spend the entire episode in a conference room. It's true. Yeah. And, like... Sounds about Star Trek, honestly. And it just bums me out. Why aren't we having this confab on Navarre? Like, why are we stuck in Discovery's, oh, like, lunchroom? Like, I want to see, like, what is what is Navarian architecture look like? I, is it a mixed match? It's such a wasted opportunity. Like, I don't think they would have changed right. anything. Vulcans are super particular about that. I don't think they ever would have budged on changing anything. You think? I can't imagine the Vulcans ever letting the Romulans change ancient Vulcan buildings. Do you think that Vulcans have, like, contracting companies that are constantly built? I don't think that they build new <laughs> stuff a whole lot. Vulcan Group, Inc. <laughs> yeah. Like, the Romulans probably built some of their own stuff, but I really doubt the Vulcans were super happy about them changing ancient Vulcan temples. Right. right. I'm sure. I'm sure, like, at least kind of how they'd presented it they have provinces like they have mixed areas and then like hybrid areas and then vulcan areas and then romulan areas so there are probably some new developments i would hope at least but in my notes i like specifically like i had this journey of like she's going to navarre oh my god she's going to navarre oh my god she's going to the planet that she was raised on like 100 years ago or whatever and then they didn't go and i was like oh (laughs) Didn't they? I could be wrong, but didn't they specifically say she's not allowed to like go to the planet? I don't believe they did. I don't recall that. I do remember they weren't allowed to go down to Earth. No, maybe that's what I'm thinking. And then they changed their mind later in that episode, and all the the lower deckers went to Starfleet Academy and sat under a tree, and it was very nice. Yeah, (laughs) that was very touching. It was cool. But yeah, I and the other big thing about it that like. I found really weird was when they started season three, you do get this hint of like, oh, like we have the temporal accords, like that, that temporal cold war from Enterprise. Yeah, we shut that shit down, blah, blah, blah. But then they get to Navarre and they're like, this is Spock's sister. We're all time travelers. And like, Saru like writes it off and explains it to the Vulcan minister. He goes, well, we had to tell you. Like, if she shows up here, like, we we have to tell we're you. We're supposed to be here, like, saying we're, you know, coming with, with truth and good faith. And, like, we come here saying anything other than exactly the reason we got here, which was not, like, a you know, an intentional violation of any future accords, you know. I think as far as they could have taken that well, they did. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Michael Burnham's mama. Because she shows up. Caitlin, I know you like the, what are they, the Quat Malat? The Quat Malat, they're the the Romulan warrior nuns who basically, they have the the tenet of absolute candor and they have a cool hand motion when they do it. It's very cool. It's like opening a book. (laughs) And um, I like it a lot. And uh, It's in a book uh, everywhere you look. Yeah. A little L. Ron Hubbard and Picard does it a lot and it's good. Um, And so... (laughs) You know, basically, the, the sect of guns you learn in Picard, where they're first introduced, that, you know, they speak with absolute candor, they take on lost causes, they bind themselves to them. Again, with that absolute candor piece, they, they speak very 
very bluntly, sometimes, you know, interpreted as as harsh, but it's it's kind of explained even more in Discovery um, that this is kind of a direct result of uh, generations and generations of intense secrecy from the the Romulans, and that, you know, this sect grew out of that as, as kind of, you know, the, the fuck you dad of it all. <laughs> and, um... <laughs> So they're still doing their Quatmalot thing hundreds and hundreds of years later. And throughout this whole season, I think this is the first time we see the mom since she jumped. Right. Because in season two... They all jump, but they're all separated. The, the ship, Michael Burnham, and the mom. Right. There's three separate jumps into the future. They all get separated. In season two, they discover that the mom <laughs> is a red angel. Mm-hmm. And, and conveniently, Michael Burnham's the other one. Yeah, again, conveniently, like, Michael Burnham's the other one. Again, she in the case of Discovery uh, being entirely too convenient. <laughs> right. She has, like, the most ridiculous plot armor. Like, right? I like her as a character, but there's moments where I'm like, God, God damn it. Why are you here? <laughs> I thought we solved who the Red Angel was, and now we're saying, but also, the life patterns are close enough. There could have been two, and maybe one was you. Right. And it's like, uh, 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 God, you know what, Spock? Just get out of here with your bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the Quatmalot's really cool, but like, I feel like this unification, right, the title Unification 3, is kind of a misnomer, because it's really setting up at the start of the episode that Michael Burnham is unsure of where she belongs. You know, she was demoted as first officer on Discovery. She lived a year in this world without anybody else. Except for her really hot boyfriend and that dumb cat. He is super hot and that cat is a queen. <laughs> Facts. But like, right. And this this to me was more of a unification of bringing her back to Starfleet and less about the Romulans and the Vulcans. And I don't know. I was kind of uh, I took it as the unification like to the Federation and like, right. again, you've got these big powers that should and and at their heart do have very similar interests, but like the the divergence in the ways they go about getting those things accomplished is what caused them to fall apart in the first place. Right. And it's interesting looking back at like you know unification parts one and two, where Spock is doing his cowboy diplomacy, and then Michael Burnham coming in and doing her thing. They both bring their humanity to it. In a way that energizes the Vulcans and the Romulans in ways that, like, neither of them can do it on their own. And so, I mean, I think that's the through line that it, that works for me. But again, it's, you know, it's a little, it's a little ham fisted. It's a little goofy because they're drawing back, like, how many times in TNG did we stand in a room with, like, 17 goddamn TTT torches and someone, you know, talks really loud? I mean, like, that's great. <laughs> I mean, it's it's wonderful and it works and it's fun, and, and it's, but it's also ham-fisted and cheesy, and so, like, you can't yeah. have one without the other. Right, it's very Star Trek. Yeah, Unification 3 definitely sort of expands upon what they mean by unification, and then, yeah. like, there's mm -hmm. that loose tie-in with, like, the previous, like, oh, yeah, by the way, here they are, they're unified, blah, 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 Navarre. And, <laughs> um, so I think that's, like, cool, but also, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, again, like, I would have loved to have seen maybe if they had touched on a little bit more about, like, the actual unification that occurred between the Vulcans and the Romulans before they just kind of did, did the things. 
I liked it. I really liked when they used the old footage of Leonard Nimoy. That Me too. And that was great. And I liked I love- when Michael Burnham says, like, I purposely did not look into my brother. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just, I didn't do it. You know, I didn't, you know, use super 34th century Wikipedia to find all about, <laughs> you know, my brother. And I thought that was very touching. Yeah, it was really nice to have, like, they have that moment of her, you know, seeing what, how, like, how he grew up, like, seeing, you know, what became of him and after all of the, you know, journeys they had gone on together and her being able to have that moment where she tears up and is really emotional about it is really sweet and touching. And, oh, what did I write down? She said something like, um, oh, yeah, she, uh, she, when, um, Sorry, <laughs> when, when um, they are talking about, uh, you know, what he would think about all of that. And he, she says, I do believe he would find it fascinating. And I was like, oh, my God, they said the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a love letter. Well, I thought it was interesting, you know, when they're they're in the To Calling Cat and, you know, they they call out they're like did you guys think we wouldn't know that it was like a blatant manipulation to send you know the sister of spock and you know it it catches her so on the back foot because she's like i have no i don't even know my brother the great man i just know Mm -hmm. my brother and like last time i saw him he had a beard yeah he had emo bangs and he was going through it okay (laughs) He was having a moment. And so it's so interesting that, like, you know, they, they, they call out that there's this, you know, manipulation going on. And she's like, I mean, it does call into question that, like, of course the Federation is opportunistic in the moment because they're they're desperate to come to a solution. But does that mean that they're nefarious? And, like, the answer is like, we don't really know yet. Like, we True. don't know if there's some other stuff going on in the Federation that, like, may not have the greatest of intentions, like, may have led to these tensions that led up to, you know, what happened after the burn, ultimately, but could have happened at any other time. And so, for Michael to kind of realize what she stepped into by participating in this and advocating for this, like, leads to what she does at the end of the episode. But, you know, it's that, that part of it was interesting to me. So before we go into the end of the episode, can we talk about the B plot? <laughs> Cause Saru needs a new first officer. That's right. And <laughs> he picks Tilly? And I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Good choice, bad choice? Yeah. Yay, it depends on from whose perspective. Like, if you're the audience, it's a good choice. If you're anybody on the ship, it's one of the worst possible choices. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you kind of see it as like, and I think Tilly takes it this way, which is why it kind of drags out the whole episode. But the idea that like he's choosing her because she's compliant and because mm-hmm. she wants to please, rather than someone who's going to go off and do their own thing. And so, like, I can see how like again a character like Tilly, who's kind of had her self esteem decimated several times throughout the series, and clearly you know got a lot of that growing up as well from the interactions you see. I think maybe it's in the short track where you see her dealing with her mom on, like, the space zoom. You know, it's kind of a mindfuck, like, to do that to her. And I don't think that was Saru's intent. Mm-hmm. But because Saru, you know, is very kind of black or white in a lot of these things, like, kind of messed with her head the whole episode, and I kind of just felt bad for her. 
What do you guys think of Saru as captain? Uh, amazing. Yeah? Saru's great. Best Star Trek captain, like Ryan. Ooh. That's a tall order. That is a tall order. Yeah, I'm not completely serious, but he is very good. <laughs> <laughs> He's My, very heartfelt. Yeah, he. I think... He's very sincere. I think he I think has so too. Yeah. a certain brand of optimism that, like, not even Picard has. Yeah, so... You know, he is too out there. Uh, in this episode specifically, he takes a role sort of in the B plot, but it makes us into the A plot as well. He's the only one that really satisfactorily articulates why the Federation is important. Like, he's the only one that takes that side. Even the Federation people are like, ah, they hate us. And he's like, no, damn it, that's (laughs) not good enough. I'm not just going to stand here while the thing that I love and threw my entire life away is just dashed on the rocks of, eh. (laughs) Just eh. I mean, that's right. what that's yeah, what well, everybody around him is basically telling him, right? I mean, right, right. He and, he and that's just, kind of like the role that they serve, I suppose. Like by being there is to kind of help restore people's faith in the Federation. So he's doing that very well. Yeah, and I think that out of everybody that's left on Discovery, he's probably the best to do it. I do like when he is kind of like escorting the admiral and is like, oh, "Let me show." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, the president. Let me show you this. Let me show you that. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't show you the spore drive, but we definitely have it. Like, <laughs> I think I think that is cool because it, it brings back a lot of that, like, TNG, TNG diplomacy. era diplomacy, which is kind of fun to see in, yeah. in swinging. Well, and I mean, the, the episodes leading up to this, they've, and they do it a couple more times after, where... Discovery gets to do a big flashy thing where they go save a civilization or they they save somebody in some really interesting way and like this is the the quieter part of diplomacy where you show up and I mean yes it's impressive Discovery has functioning warp capability I mean that's impressive to everybody at this point but they're able to come in and do the quiet part which is just to you know restore faith without having to do something particularly flashy about that ending though. When Michael Burnham pulls out of, like, she rescinds her the debate. Yeah. I don't know. How do you guys feel about that? I thought, I don't know. Everybody's motivations going into this episode were so muddled, and we don't really get to spend a lot of time on Navarre and figuring out, like, which of these three council members, presidents, you know, representatives, what have you, where they really stand on it. So it just kind of felt like this was more about Michael than anything else. I don't know. I don't think it was so much about Michael as it was about her. Well, I mean, it it was to an extent, but it was about her realizing finally, after like three entire seasons, just how precarious the situation is that she's thrusting everybody else into. And kind of finally realizing, yeah, you might be right, but that's not always good enough. Sometimes you need to take actual responsibility for how the the situation mm-hmm. around you and the people that you're involving in these things. And that goes all the way back to the first episode, right? The pilot, Battle of Binary Stars. So finally, she realizes that it's maybe not – it's important. But so is this other thing that she's not so invested in. So it shows a lot of growth on her part to kind of rescind and go, you know what? I really need to do this. This isn't the right way to do it. I'm fucking too much up. Well, and even her mom does make the point that, like, Michael Burnham has the tendency to 
to insert herself into situations of great import? And is it because she also wishes to be an important person? Or is it because she wants to fix things? Is it because, like, she thinks it's her duty? Like, where does all of this come from? And those are questions I think that, you know, Michael is actually finally starting to confront herself, which is very nice. Yeah, I think it was a good sign of, you know, good faith. And she said, like, okay, you know, I'm not going to bull rush into this and force your hand or anything. I'm going to give you the information that I have as a sign of good faith. And then she leaves the ball in their court and says, you know, I'm putting my best foot forward. I hope you will join me. And then kind of, and yeah, her mom definitely brought that out into the open and then mentioned also how, you know, these three people aren't your only audience. And that's eventually what leads to um, Tarina. Like she sees that and she decides and kind of, I guess, overrides the decision of the the gathering. Yeah, And all of this kind of goes back into what I was talking about earlier with lifespans. The Vulcans and Romulans that are here, that are unified, it's only two or three generations. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about a gigantic amount of time. Like, for a Vulcan, it's 800 years. That's four Vulcan lifespans. That's their grandparents and great-grandparents. So they haven't had as much time as it might seem to really integrate. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other thing that comes out during her to Kalinket challenge. I go back and forth. I don't know. I think bringing it's, it's in a tough her one. mom was a little heavy-handed. But, like, it's got to be somebody she recognized and knew. And, like, Sarek's dead. <laughs> so, like, you know, it can't be anybody else, really. Do you guys feel that it underserves the plot by having Michael get what she wanted anyway, even though she took the high road and said, there's a better way to get this information, and then she gets what she wants anyway? Or is that just silly plot? Yes and no, maybe a little both. I think it's, you know, she definitely learns a lesson Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, like you said, there is a better way to get this information. And, you know, kind of ties into, like, toward the end where she says, you know what? Yeah, I think this is where I belong. But, you know, I don't want her to have to suffer and strife for the entire season to, like, <laughs> to learn things. <laughs> but, you know, I think I think we can have all we all have those teaching moments where it's an experience or, like, something that someone says to you. But, yeah, yeah. I, quite, I quite like that she rescinds the request. Yeah. And has the, the kind of wide-eyed Michael Burnham moment of... Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't need to come in here and, like, rehash all of this for you guys. Like, I've mm-hmm. clearly done that, and I'm sorry. And we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure it out, and this was, this was probably a little hasty. Mm-hmm. At whether or not she gets, you know, uh, the, the flash drive from, you know, Saru's <laughs> friend, the president of Navarre, it, take it or leave it, right? I mean... They needed to move the plot along at that point, so like right. I think they needed to get that information either way. But you know, the fact that they got the information at the end is kind of like, huh, okay, I guess. Yeah, I think going forward will really be kind of the the sign of you know how she continues to navigate the world and these conflicts. Right. And now, yes, maybe this kind of worked out in your favor, but maybe you know if you keep making these mistakes, might not be so lucky. So. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say too, because a lot, a lot of these things kind of the timelines converge, and 
this happened in this series and maybe they'll show this in the next series or whatever. And it's like you, a lot of these things kind of seem to happen off screen as well. So dis- Discovery is a bit of a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, discover. it's an understatement it's of fun. the year. It's, it's fun <laughs> to watch and I like the characters and I think they have some interesting premise premises happening with these episodes and the overall storyline. And I was actually, you know, like listening to um, – last week's episode while I was driving in my car commuting home and you know I liked a lot of the points that you guys had made about it oh shucks <laughs> you guys are pretty neat but how <laughs> they, they kind of have this new sandbox to play in with the timeline that you know they're not they're not treading the line of prequel territory anymore this is completely you know a new a new section of space really to navigate so it's cool, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's <laughs> it's conflicting. Well, there's something I mean that we've talked about in in some other episodes and 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 in our you know kind of off mic chats that Discovery does a really interesting job, not just paying homage to other series, but incorporating that information in a way that mm-hmm. tries to present either a new layer to it or develop it more or just you know keep keep it moving within the Star Trek canon and not everything's gonna be a home run <laughs> as I a know. result because A, right. you're never gonna make everyone happy, right? People that love thing A are not necessarily gonna like thing B. Right. But at the same time, Discovery consistently tries to take swings for things that are maybe a little bit past its level. And like I can't help but respect that. That's kind of scrappy get mm-hmm. an attitude and that's kind of cool. It's good to be ambitious, yeah. But you know, I, I said it off mic earlier too. They kind of write themselves into corners when Constantly. they want oh, yeah. they want this thing to happen, <laughs> and then they kind of come up with a stupid, you know, reason or a way that it happens because their main characters are smarter than they are. And that's like you know, that sounds mean, but it's like I get it. I've <laughs> right, been there. Right. It's hard. It's hard to write write like a brainy bookish type when you know maybe you aren't one. So <laughs> right. Trying to be smarter than you actually are is very, very difficult. But what I will say on that note, though, is for for writers out there, if you're going to write a really smart character, do not – and this goes for everything, not just smart, but don't do it by virtue of harming the other characters in your scene. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to make somebody really good at fighting, don't do it by making everybody else – terrible at fighting. Make the other people good at fighting, too. That way, when your character is better than they are – that's impressive instead of annoying. That's the big it's thing earned. that a lot of fiction, like that's the trap that fiction falls into a lot for me. Uh, actually, unrelated, Caitlin and I this past weekend, or past week, I should say, decided to rewatch the Matrix movies. And they, nice. are very, they are very, very good at that. They are very good at making each character independent and making each character their own thing without diminishing other characters. And I mm. think Discovery inches up on that a lot, but it does kind of lose it. And, you know, this week, B-plot with Tilly becoming first officer and everything, there's this really poignant conversation that she has with Stamets about it. Mm-hmm. And she, like, wants to ask him, like, oh, should I do it? Should like, I not? Like, she wants his validation, and he, right. he kind of, like, looks at her and kind of, like, blows it off. And, like... It's such a simple little moment, but like for a character like her, it is it is a devastating moment. And then it, they move on to the next thing, and so of course they ne- neatly wrap it up with the the rah rah speech at the end. 
you know, those little moments like that where the characters actually get to have those moments with each other where it's like just kind of a passing comment, but it cuts so deeply is what I've wanted out of Discovery this entire time. Do you think mm-hmm. Discovery would be better served if it was, uh, I don't want to say 26 episode seasons, because that just sounds no. exhausting. Absolutely not. <laughs> but like, do you think it would be better if it was more than just 13 to have like these episodes to allow characters to breathe a little more? You know, it, it's hard to say because so another show, I'll give you an example. So another show we're watching right now is Ted Lasso. Right. It's the, the happiest, feel-goodiest show about anxiety of the year. <laughs> and so season two, uh, they they had ten episodes in their, their plot and their script and they were really excited about it. And then Apple TV ordered twelve. So they were like, shit. We need two more episodes. So they wrote a Christmas episode, and then they wrote the episode that uh, we just recently watched, which is a character study on one character, where they have this, like, Twin Peaks adventure through the city. And it was wonderful. And you could place that basically anywhere in the season, and it still works. And I think Discovery needs more of those side missions away with other characters mm-hmm. and to give us just time to breathe and to, to, to love them more. And I think you get a little bit of that with some of the B-plots where, you know, the lower deckers do some stuff towards the end of the season that's kind of fun. And, you know, you you do get tastes of it, but you don't get these just complete separations like the crew light episodes where it's Mm -hmm. like somebody just having an adventure. And I, I think that's, you know, an area I'd love to see Discovery go into more. I think the only place you get it in this season in, I think it's called Terra Firma, which I think we're covering. Yeah, it's a two-parter. You it's get, a big two-parter. You get some of that because, like, Giorgio's going on her own adventure, but, like, again, the main cast is all still there. They're just hamming, sandwiching it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like, it sounds- when you're given the opportunity to do more episodes that, again, don't have those, like, universe-ending stakes, mm-hmm. you can have a whole episode about a poker game. Like, you can do it. I know you can discover right. it. Right, right. And this is what I was going to say. That's something that trek does so well or has done so well in the past with you know having these more individual stories peppered in and i mean in some cases that that was it like each episode was its own thing and its own narrative within a greater narrative but not really like this huge overarching plot that i think you know that's where discovery loses a lot of people is that it's kind of you know, it's hard to keep up with. Like, There's no, to- like, dumb Loxwana Troy episode of right. Discovery. There's I, not the what- one you go back to and you're like, this was weird. Remember that time, like, Mom <laughs> started a union? And, like, <laughs> it, it got real weird there. Remember no. that time Beverly Crusher fucked a ghost? Yeah, like, there's no, there's no Beverly Crusher fucked a ghost in Discovery. Remember that time like, David got a cat? Yeah. One of my favorite episodes from TOS was when they go down to that one planet and they all just trip balls and like see the Easter bunny and like that's my comfort episode. I like I watch that one in bed before I go to sleep sometimes. Shrooms and then they they like fight each other. Right, and like there's the one where they like go to there's with the spores like the 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 flower spores sneeze in their faces and then they get loopy and do stupid things like i like things like that that kind of you know it's good for the audience to have some levity as well but then you also kind of humanize or maybe not the right word for a lot of the alien characters but like you you personalize the characters a bit more that we can relate to them and maybe expand upon their relationships in some sense and 
Yeah, that kind of gets lost in a lot of the, you know, fast-talking drama, walking dramatically down the hallway kind of scenes that Discovery does so well. We, we get some of that with the short tracks. Yeah. Because, like, you get to indulge, A, in different artistic visions of, like, what Trek is and, like, True. how you present the stories, but also you get, like, you know, the, the triple incident uh, with the Sean <laughs> Benjamin episode, and, like, you get Tilly with her friend who's also a queen, and, you know, you get those little moments that, like, and, and again, funny. Like, it's dumb. Like, that triple episode is deeply silly. <laughs> yeah. But, like, goofy. it works. And the one where, like, Spock and number one get stuck in an elevator together. Like, it's great. I want more of that. And it really just, it needs to be intentional to, to make it a part of your season. So it yeah. sounds like everybody's on the same page here. So I'm hoping I'm not going out too far on a limb. It sounds like in season four, they need to install a holodeck on Discovery. God, please. I mean, that'd be great. Because, like, Discovery doesn't have a holodeck. I would also accept a musical episode. Yeah. <laughs> I am not that a merry man. So... Well, <laughs> uh, I, um... <laughs> the holodecks are always, like... They're fun, and, I, and because of Voyager, we totally get why <laughs> they should really be on the ship. But my god, are those episodes so annoying sometimes. Like, I They're like yeah, I like the fun episodes, and the but I like them to be more se- not more serious, but I like them to be a little bit more relevant to the plot and what's going on. So like all of the weird Shakespeare e episodes and TNG and stuff, man, it's really hard to get through that stuff. Please do not put a holodeck on Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> but holodeck about, with like, caution. <laughs> but what about like when Rom like has his whole PTSD episode? That's not Rom. Or not Rom, Nog, sorry. When Nog has his own PTSD episode. That's just one of the best episodes of DS9. Wants to live in the holodeck forever. Because he can't deal. Like I think that stuff's great. I also like deeply, deeply, as stupid as it is, I love the Captain Proton stuff. I also love <laughs> yeah, what's gonna, Moriarty. I was about to say, like, what's going to happen is Moriarty, which isn't so bad. Moriarty was a great concept the way they did it in TNG. And as long as yeah. you tie it more into stuff the characters are going through, and not just them going, haha, let's fuck around in the holodecks for an hour. Right. It's fine. Right. But you've, We're not talking like season one DS9. We're talking yeah, about, yeah, yeah, like, some other shit. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with yeah. that. Is, and they've, they've, they've done a nice integration i think when they do like the movie nights and stuff where like the ship does the projections and like i like the movie nights. they they make it a lot more clear that those items are not quote real than in tng where they were like we're just gonna have stuff happening around us and tell everyone else that it's you know it's hard light particles it's fine you know what actually i've got a i've got a fun story here that i think would be really cool if they if they do put a hollow deck in discovery they need to do this so I'm sure that everybody here is familiar with it, but I'm just going to talk about it. When we first had movies and film, one of the first moving pictures was the train, right? That goes towards the screen. Right, right. And as it gets closer, mm-hmm. the audience freaks the fuck out because they're like, wait a minute, that train is about to right, crash right. into us. The people on Discovery have never seen holodecks. They've never seen this shit. <laughs> so they really do need a like a like a train moment that would make oh it all God, worth please. it. I would love that. That'd be amazing. 
Also, there's like a 0% chance that Cronenberg is not a hologram and they just haven't figured it out yet. So like, <laughs> right. David very Cronenberg. excited for them to all be betrayed by David Cronenberg. Oh, he is like the most mysterious character. I want to know more. But I also don't. But I also do. It's I also never a- want them to explain what his deal is. Right. He's just there. He's just there. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Yeah, but I never got um, to give my super spicy Matrix take, Ryan. You brought up Matrix. Ooh, super spicy takes. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready? Well, I'm going to give your Matrix take and then any final closing thoughts on Unification Part 3. Go. Okay. Here's my super spicy Matrix take. Cypher was right. Ooh. Ooh. I don't like Philosophy that. degree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. Degree. All right, so what do you, what do you think about <laughs> Unification Part 3? Well, we're going to argue about that a little <laughs> Yeah, so first off, uh, Unification 3, them naming it Unification 3 and then not really writing up to the standard of what Unification was all about is just kind of disappointing. I get what they were going for. I really appreciate them trying to use future Discovery episodes to, like, show off where certain storylines went. And really, without this sort of time travel, we would never have gotten to see it. So it's cool that we saw it and we got Navarre out of it. It's really cool. I like that at the end of the entire of the season, this pays off in a big way that I won't spoil right now, but it's really cool when it happens and I love it. So in general, I like this episode. While I was watching it, I thought, you know what? How good this episode ends really depends on where the burn goes. And as we (laughs) will see, it doesn't go to a great place. And therefore, this episode sort of falls flat for me. Yeah, that's fair enough. Sarah, do you have any thoughts on either The Matrix or Unification Part 3? (laughs) Oh, do I? (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, kind of what we touched on, it was, there were some high points, there's some low points, there's some things I like about it, there's some things that I wish that they would have done better in the episode itself, and you know, in the within the series as a whole, but I will say being the nostalgia little baby that I am, I did love seeing Leonard Nimoy in Discovery. I thought that was a really touching moment. And I love those kinds of callbacks that we have. Even if they do fall flat in some ways, it was nice to see from a emotional perspective. And another thing too, that I thought was really cool, kind of a callback to the past was the name Navarre actually came from a fanzine from back in the day. I was wondering about that. I was looking it up all day mm-hmm. yesterday, trying to figure out what the root of Navarre was as a thing. That's really cool. Yep, Navarre was invented by a fan who wrote uh, a Spock fanzine, I think. That's awesome. And, um, and was it was later? It, it was the same. Was it the unified uh, Romulus and, and Vulcan? Uh, I don't think that it was the same, but the root of the word means like two parts or like two something, like a duality. It represents like a duality. So it's a really good name for this. And because I was, when I was looking up like the episode summary, just to make sure I didn't miss anything, it had like a little like fun fact section at the end. And I think later on, Leonard Nimoy also used the term Navarre, like pulled from that and then use it in a similar context. So now, the fact that um, it's there. Also, I'm looking it up now. Uh, it was a Vulcan starship name in Enterprise, which I totally cool. do not remember at all. So it, it's kind of cool to see those like little like Deep nuggets cuts, of yeah, that's really, yeah really awesome. it's really yeah. So I mean, take that for what you will. Yeah, but, but it was still yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, but what do you think about Cipher? 
Oh. <laughs> well, that you'll just have to tune in next time. <laughs> I will say another thing. I think it's in this episode at the very beginning when they're talking about the black boxes and where they pulled the data. They do mention the USS Yelchin. Which, yes. Oh my God. Yes. Thank you. Oh my God. I forgot about that. Very sad because he was was very loved, brilliant, very awesome. And I cry every time I watch Beyond because me uh, too. He he had so much more to give, and it just it sucks. Um, Caitlin, did you have any? Final thoughts on Unification 3 and, I guess, The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> um, my my hot take on the new movie is that we might be looking at an older version of The Matrix. Um, and that makes me wonder if we're going to get like a younger version of the Merovingian. <laughs> and I'm kind of into it because I want to see if his accent is that exaggerated in an earlier version of the matrix before he decided that that was the one he was going to stick with because <laughs> he makes it very clear that he speaks like a bunch of different languages and that he's tried them all out so anyway i have merovingian thoughts but um you know again i really enjoy this episode and i know i'm kind of an apologist for when they do these episodes that are rooted in in what could easily turn into just a nostalgia fest, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's more successful than it's not, which is kind of how Discovery rolls for me once you get past the first half of season one. Um, I really enjoy the, the the Navarre president talking with Saru throughout the episode and their quiet moments and how Saru very gently probes at like, you know, what was the real issue here? What were you guys actually upset about? And and her trusting Saru rather than necessarily the Federation. I think that's just, it's very interesting, his approach and the fact that she was so receptive to it because we're used to Vulcans kind of shutting themselves off. And the fact that she entertains it long enough to hear him out and be swayed by him, I think is very interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I like it. I mean, there's a lot of other noise in Discovery, basically at all times. Mm-hmm. And th- there were a couple moments in this episode where they were really able to, like, get down to what they needed to address. And I think largely successful. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure, Sarah, to have you back. Michael, thank you. thank you for talking all things Vulcan and Romulan. Of course. Caitlin, thank you for your wisdom on the Matrix. How come I wasn't such for my wisdom on the Matrix? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ryan did just have to deal with, like, two evenings in a row of me, like, shouting, like, trans theory at him as we watched the sequels. Nah. Uh, my hot take on the Matrix is the Matrix Reloaded aged probably the best out of any film in the past 20 years. It aged way better years. than anyone gives a yeah, credit for. way better. Um, it's like that and Ratatouille, the two best age movies <laughs> I can think of. Ratatouille um, is undisputed. So that brings us to conclusion on Unification Part 3. Next week we are covering Terra Firma, and I bet Philippa Georgiou has some hot Matrix takes. I bet she does too. We'll be sure to dive deep and figure those out. Yep. You can always follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 2star2trek. And until next week, to be continued.